Mystical experiences are those peculiar states of consciousness in which the individual discovers himself to be one continuous process with God, with the universe, with the ground of being, or whatever name he may use by cultural conditioning or personal preference for the ultimate and eternal reality. Alan Watts Hi there. Welcome to the MindRamp Podcast. I'm your host, Michael C. Patterson. In this episode of the Mind Over Muddle series, I want to look at how mystical experiences have been described by mystics and scholars, and we will pay particular attention to one of the most important characteristics of a mystical experience, the feeling of unity with something greater than oneself. The core idea I'm exploring in this series is that we can unmuddle our minds by rebalancing the influence of the left and right hemispheres. We need to diminish the influence of our left hemisphere and amplify the influence of the right hemisphere. I'm interested in mysticism as a potential strategy to shift our brains into this right hemisphere mode. I began with the definition of mysticism offered by Alan Watts because he makes the important point that the sense of unity felt by mystics is described according to their cultural conditioning and in accordance with the belief systems that they have embraced. Mystics visualize that grander-than-themselves entity in a variety of different ways. For many, God is the most convenient word to use. But Buddhists might prefer to express the idea as the void or Buddha. Taoists might prefer to say the Tao or the way. The point is that whatever people call the experience, it is a real experience that has a profound effect on them, changing the way their mind works. William James in his book Varieties of Religious Experience makes the same point about the consistency and reality of mystical experiences. He says, quote, The overcoming of all the usual barriers between the individual and the absolute is the great mystical achievement. In mystic states, we both become one with the absolute and we become aware of our oneness. This is the everlasting and triumphant mystical tradition, hardly altered by differences in clime or creed. In Hinduism, in Neoplatonism, in Sufism, in Christian mysticism, in Whitmanism, as in the poet Walt Whitman, we find the same recurring note, so that there is about mystical utterances an eternal unanimity, which ought to make a critic stop and think, and which brings it about that the mystical classics have, as has been said, neither birthday nor native land perpetually telling of the unity of man with God, their speech antedates languages, and they do not grow old. In the 1960s, the Princeton philosopher Walter Stace wrote what some feel to be the most definitive philosophical treatise on mystical experiences. Stace argued, like William James had before him, that mystical experiences have a common core of phenomenological features. In addition to the sense of unity, both James and Stace note that the mystical experience has a noetic quality. N-O-E-T-I-C, a noetic quality. 
The mystical experience is deeply profound and moving. However bizarre or otherworldly the experience may seem, it also feels truer and more real than anything that has previously been experienced. Ineffability is another characteristic identified by both James and Stace. The mystical experience, in large part because of this noetic quality, cannot be adequately explained using language. It's beyond words. Words are limited. Language can only describe a small subset of the entire vastness of our experience. I mean, how can one adequately describe the feeling of unity with God or with the flow of consciousness? It's impossible. How can one describe the feeling of love to someone who has never fallen in love? Or how does one describe puberty and the rise of sexual feelings to someone who has yet to reach the age of maturity? It's impossible. It must be felt. It must be experienced firsthand. So that's the ineffability. It's beyond words. Stace also noted that mystical experiences are often paradoxical in opening ourselves to unity with that something grander than ourselves. We open our minds to conditions that go beyond logic and reason. We accept ambiguity, contradictions, and the coexistence of polar opposites. Anyone who has been following our discussion of the differences between left and right hemisphere ways of attending to reality will recognize that the mystical experience involves a release of left hemisphere conditions and adherence to logic and rationality and literalism and an acceptance of the right hemisphere's comfort with the way things are in all their glorious diversity and paradoxality. Part of the paradoxical nature of the mystical experience results from another of Stace's characteristics, the suspension of the normal rules of time and space. When in the mystical experience, the passage of time has little meaning, nor do the usual bounds of location and space. What are the boundaries of eternity and infinity? For that matter, what are the boundaries between self and others? Finally, Stace notes that in spite of all this paradox and suspension of normal reality, the mystical experience is almost always positive. The unity with the vital life force feels awesome. It might be a bit frightening or disconcerting at first, but ultimately the mystical experience brings one a deep feeling of peace, comfort, and equanimity. The sense of positivity comes about, I believe, when the proper relationship of the two hemispheres of our brain is restored. The right hemisphere is put back in charge, and the left hemisphere resumes its proper role as a useful but limited servant. This analogy comes from Ian McGilchrist, who introduced his hemisphere hypothesis in his book The Master and His Emissary. In short, the right hemisphere is the benevolent master of the mind. The left hemisphere is the useful servant, who unfortunately has decided to usurp the role of the right hemisphere and put himself in charge. The usurping left hemisphere silences the input of the true master and, in the process, causes the rise of all kinds of confusion, conflict, and suffering. This is our normal state of affairs. 
Our rational, logical, language-oriented left hemisphere has taken charge of our mind and has suppressed the more holistic, intuitive, and mystical modes of perception used by the right hemisphere. The mystical experience reverses this relationship and puts the right hemisphere back in charge, where it belongs. This unmuddles our mind, which feels great. Let me offer one description of a mystical experience as an example. This is the American writer and politician Claire Booth Luce, who lived from 1903 to 1987, describing an experience she had one summer day when she was 16 or 17 years old. She says, I remember that it was a cool, clean, fresh, calm, blue, radiant day, and that I stood by the shore my feet not in the waves. And now, as then, I find it difficult to explain what did happen. I expect that the easiest thing to say is that suddenly something was. My whole soul was cleft clean by it, as a silk veil slit by a shining sword. And I knew. I don't know now what I knew. I remember I didn't know even then. That is, I didn't know with any faculty. It was not in mind or heart or bloodstream. But whatever it was I knew, it was something that made enormous sense. And it was final, yet that word could not be used, for it meant end, and there was no end to this finality. Then joy abounded in all of me. Or rather, I abounded in joy. I seemed to have no nature, and yet my whole nature was adrift in this immense joy, as a speck of dust is seen to dance in the great golden shaft of sunlight. End quote. I think you find all of Stace's characteristics of a mystical experience in Luce's account. It was a sense of unity, a noetic quality. Her experience was ineffable and paradoxical. Her sense of time and space were disrupted. And the experience was was positive. She experienced immense joy. One important aspect of the mystical unity is the dissolution of self. The ego, the individual I, loses its importance, becomes meaningless and insignificant. The individual is nothing, to use Luce's term, but a speck of dust when contrasted with the vastness of existence. Walter Stace makes an interesting distinction between two basic types of unity. He characterizes them as introverted and extroverted forms of unity that occur within a mystical experience. And, as I understand it, this distinction has largely to do with what the mystical experience does to one's sense of self. Stay says the introverted type of unity is, quote, an experience of the complete dissolution of the self, loss of the notion of I, and loss of all boundaries, such that there is no separation or individual identity. End quote. So this is a non-dualistic sense of the way things work. In this kind of mystical experience, our sense of self merges with that of the grander process. There is no self and other, just the one, just the way, the Tao, God. The mystic is not simply linked to God, 
the mystic becomes God or realizes that she always has been God. I am God, God is me. In the extroverted type of unity, the self retains its separate identity. In this kind of mystical unity, the mystic has not become God, but has joined with God. It's a kind of collaboration, or more deeply a surrender to the way of the world or to the will of God. It implies a full acceptance of God or Tao while retaining the sense of individuality. Now, Stace thinks this is a somewhat lesser form of mystical experience. It's interesting to note that many descriptions of mystical experience use the metaphor of a monarchy to describe what it is they become united with. The enlightened mystic enters the kingdom of heaven, in which presumably God is the king, the boss man. Here are three quick quick examples. The, the Hindu Ramana Maharishi says, This is the kingdom of heaven. The realized being sees this as the kingdom of heaven, whereas the others see it as the world. And the Buddhist Thich Nhat Hanh says, You don't have to die in order to enter the kingdom of God. It is better to do it now when you are fully alive. The kingdom does not have to come to you, and you do not have to go to it. It is already here. There is not one day that I do not walk in the kingdom of God. And Joseph Campbell, the American expert on mythologies of the world, says, This is it. This is Eden. When you see the kingdom spread upon the earth, the old way of living in the world is annihilated. That is the end of the world. The end of the world is not an event to come. It is an event of psychological transformation, a visionary transformation. You see not the world of solid things, but a world of radiance. So with all these examples, I want to focus on how the metaphor shapes further thinking about what's going on. The metaphor of a kingdom implies that the unity happens with a thing a kingdom, rather than with a process, as Alan Watts would have it. You enter the kingdom of heaven rather than joining the flow of consciousness or something along those lines. And further, this kingdom is ruled by God. It has a prescribed social order with God sitting at the top of the hierarchy. You may join as a servant of the ruler, but you can't even dream of becoming the ruler. That would upset the hierarchy. You can't claim that you are the king and the king is you or you will be beheaded. You take your place rather as a vassal or servant of God. You retain your selfhood and give yourself over to the service of God. I point this out to make the point that the metaphors we use can shape the nature of our experience. Unity with God as boss man leads to a very different place than does the idea of unity with cosmic consciousness or the flow of life's vital force. Many contemplative practices seem to strive for the full dissolution of self, for the introverted type of unity in which there is a non-dualistic merging of self and other. The mystical approach favors direct, intuitive understanding of the process of life, as opposed to adherence to the concepts and doctrines of a specific belief system. 
Mystic contemplative practices suggest that the ego self, the self that is subservient and dutiful, the ego that gets insulted, hurt, defensive and jealous, is a fabrication of the mind. And this fabricated self is the source of most of our suffering. We can reduce suffering, therefore, by freeing ourselves from the fantasies of our ego and steeping ourselves in direct experience of what real life has to offer. For example, the, the Buddhist monk Matthieu Ricard explains that Buddhists feel we misinterpret reality when we, quote, grasp to the notion of there being a separate, autonomous self that would be the core of our being and would stand as the central command post of our experience. This delusion of self leads to, quote, all kinds of afflictive mental states, end quote. Ricard goes on to say that, quote, once we believe in such a self-entity with which we identify, we want to protect it and fear its disappearance. This powerful attachment to the notion of self engineers the notion of mine, my body, my name, my friends, and so on, end quote. Ricard, who trained as a molecular biologist before becoming a monk, collaborated with neuroscientist Wolf Singer on a fascinating book called Beyond the Self, Conversations Between Buddhism and Neuroscience. The two authors sought to find areas of consilience between the two disciplines of the mind, areas where Buddhist practice and modern brain research come together and reach similar conclusions. During the conversation, Ricard explains that he never suggests that there is no self. He concedes, quote, that there is indeed a conventional, nominal self attached to our body and mind. That concept is fine and functional, as long as we don't conceive of it as being a kind of central, autonomous, lasting entity that constitutes the heart of our being, end quote. You get into trouble, Ricard suggests, when, quote, you fabricate an entity that you then install as the ruler of your world, end quote. McGilchrist might echo this sentiment, saying that we get into trouble when we allow our left hemisphere to rule our mental world and mistake its fabricated world for reality. Wolf Singer, who is the Emeritus Director of the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research, asks Ricard, quote, can we call this projection? And Ricard responds, yes, it is a mental projection. He continues that the Buddhist analytical approach aims at demonstrating this mental fabrication through logical and experiential investigation and comes to the conclusion that we are not that imaginary entity with which we identify ourselves, but rather a continuous, dynamic stream of experience, end quote. So what Buddhism tries to achieve through deconstruction of our thought processes, the mystical experience achieves through some kind of sudden awakening or enlightenment. Neither Ricard nor Singer raise this possibility, but it strikes me that what Buddhists and mystics describe as enlightenment is a dramatic shift away from left hemisphere dominance towards greater embrace of right hemisphere perspectives. The fabricated self is a projection of the left hemisphere. Recognition of the continuous dynamic stream of experience is the way of the right hemisphere. 
As Buddhists suggest, when we get stuck in the left hemisphere mode of projecting a separate, alienated self, our mind gets muddled and we open ourselves to all kinds of suffering. Buddhist practice seeks to reveal the illusory nature of left hemisphere projections and thereby enable the mind to rest more completely within the right hemisphere, which they see as the truer reality, as do I. The mystical experience, I believe, achieves the same kind of transformation of hemispheric influence, but in a more spontaneous and rapid manner. Finally, I want to call attention to another point that Alan Watts makes in his short definition of the mystical experience. Remember that he says that one finds unity with, quote, one continuous process with God, end quote. Unity, to Watts's way of thinking, is a dynamic process. The unity found through a mystical experience is not a fixed and stable state of mind, but instead is an ongoing process of growth, discovery and expression. It's creative. This is because God, the Tao, the way of all being is a living process, not a fixed thing. It's not a king sitting on a divine throne, not a person at all. As Ricard describes it, Buddhist thinking, which seems analogous to a mystical experience, involves, quote, identifying ourselves with the continuous dynamic stream of experience. The mystical experience is noetic, ineffable, and paradoxical because the mystic is swept into the flow of grandeur and becomes absorbed in it. It is a visceral felt experience, not an intellectual exercise. The mystic does not become one with the concept of God or the Tao. It isn't an intellectual exercise. This would be a kind of intellectual understanding, perhaps similar to Stace's extroverted unity. Intellectual unity may be a stepping stone to a deeper experiential unity and intuitive unity, but ultimately the mystical experience involves a letting go of intellectual conceptions of unity, or, or anything else for that matter, and an embrace of the experience of being an integral manifestation of the one, the way, the flow, the nature of things. So I think even the most skeptical among us has to accept that people who report having had a mystical experience are experiencing something, something that is very real for them. And the experience changes them, changes their brains, it changes the way their minds work. Mystics have had a profound experience that alters the way they see their role in the grand scheme of things. It changes them for better. They tend to be happier, kinder people. This, I hope, brings us back to my original thesis that we can unmuddle our minds by finding a more balanced flow of influence between our left and right hemispheres. We exist largely under the dominance of the left hemisphere, so we need to quiet that kind of thinking. We will find the peace of mind we seek by learning to engage more deeply and regularly with right hemisphere perceptions of the world. Buddhist practice is one route to achieving this goal. Having a mystical experience is another. Thanks for listening. I hope you will continue this journey of discovery with me. 
By the way, you can now support my work by opting to subscribe to the MindRamp podcast. It's totally optional. But if you find value in these podcasts, you can return the favor by subscribing. Just go to the MindRamp podcast website at www.mindrampodcast.buzzsprout.com or you can also get there from our website at www.mindramp.org. All right, till next time, here's hoping you live long and live well. Well,